0: Hello, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. So, this week we are going to be concluding our The Body Keeps the Score series. Um, so, I'm going to be covering episode, or I'm sorry, part five today, but this is like episode three of that series. Um, a few things before we start. For one, I am uh, very ill, <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um <sighs> I was waiting to record this episode until maybe I felt a little better and I do feel better, but I'm still very sick. So, um, this is, I'm going to try to keep this episode to an hour. The last two episodes have been a little bit longer and by a little, I mean like a lot. Um, so, and then it's also Thursday and those of you who are actually like in my life personally, know that Thursday, Thursdays are cleaning days for me. So my washer is running and so is my dryer. Uh, so sorry, I have to do my laundry. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so I'm going to try to keep this a little shorter. Um, there was also a little less, um, not less material, but a little bit less. Um, I don't know. It wasn't as scattered, I think as the other parts have been. So I think it might be a little more cohesive than normal, which is helpful. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to give you guys a similar rundown to what I've given you the last two times. So, um, we're going to be going over the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, my version is published in 2014. It is a five part book and the book hops from topic to topic. So I read part five and the epilogue, which were pages 205 to 358. And I organized the things that stood out to me, uh, which just as a heads up, this is going to be on treatment is basically the entirety of part five. Um, I'm going to tell you guys the podcast trigger warning and then also the book trigger warning. So the podcast trigger warning will be PTSD, trauma, sexual abuse, sexual assault, childhood abuse, depression, and addiction. This will be the least intense episode in terms of material that may be triggering. If anything, this is probably going to be material that is a little bit more hopeful. And that might make you feel encouraged. Um, But if you haven't felt comfortable reading this book and you feel like it might be too triggering to you, I would highly suggest reading part five. Um, This part centers on treatment. Um, It gives a lot of beneficial resources and scientific evidence behind methods of treatment and like the pathway to recovery. And then this chapter also includes stories of violence and trauma. So beware. Um, I included page numbers like of especially graphic depictions of drama. So the book trigger warning for chapter, uh, I'm sorry, for part five and the epilogue is PTSD, trauma, self-harm, which is on page 266, sexual abuse and assault. And there was a specifically explicit recollection on pages 259 to 261. And then childhood abuse, molestation slash incest, relational abuse, war, trauma, violence, death, and addiction. So just beware. Um, and then I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer. I've given it the last two times. Um, this book is very, very in-depth. It reads like a textbook. It also has no trigger warnings, nor does it warn the reader when things like rape or violence will be described. If that is something that's triggering for you, I would be careful about reading it. Um, like I said, part five is not as intense, but still, I would, I you know, arrive with caution. Um, I also did not write this book, nor am I claiming that these ideas are my own. This book was written by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and it is entirely his. I am breaking it down because of the sheer density of the material, and I feel like I'm in a place where I have the emotional and mental capacity to read this, but I wish that I had the information inside earlier. I just didn't have the space to consume it yet. So I'm hoping that my breaking down of the material will help others gain the knowledge without having to expel as much energy. I'll be quoting van der Kolk but I'll make it clear when I do so. I will also be linking the link to purchase the book. And I highly suggest you do as much as I will be reviewing the highlights. There is so much I won't be able to cover that's beneficial for trauma survivors. The book is it's this, this part five was uh, the whole book is just dense. Um, So like the the amount that I'm sharing with you guys is so limited in, in reality of how in depth it is. So I'm going to give you the outline of what we're going to go through um, we're going to talk about treatment. We're going to talk about uh, talking about trauma. We're going to talk through some less successful treatments and then some more successful treatments. Um, and then we're also going to go into the epilogue, which he talks about like politics and trauma and like resilience. Which I personally just think he words things very well in that in the epilogue. And it, I I think it's important. Um, so starting off with the intro to treatment, just kind of the way that he intros, he starts off with a a little excerpt on page two Oh five. Um, so he says, nobody can treat a war or abuse, rape, molestation, or any other horrendous event for that matter. What has happened cannot be undone, but what can be dealt with are the imprints of trauma on body, mind, and soul. The crushing sensation in your chest that you may label as anxiety or depression, the fear of losing control, always being on alert for danger or rejection, the self-loathing, the nightmares and flashbacks, the fog that keeps you from staying on task and from engaging fully in what you are doing, being unable to fully open your heart to another human being. I just wanted to start off with that because I I just, I'm going to quote from him a lot, especially in this part, like in part five, because me trying to re-explain treatment when he explains it beautifully just doesn't make any sense. So he talks about how the first step to healing is talking about your trauma. We talked about this, I think in part one, um, and we talked about Freud might've been part two. I think that was part two. Um, but we talked about Freud and how Freud thought that the fir- like basically if you talk about your trauma, it gets rid of it. <laughs> um, and that, that has pretty much been debunked. Um, and so Vander Kolk says on page 207, understanding why you feel a certain way does not change how you feel, but it can keep you from surrendering to intense reactions. So it's not that understanding how you feel is unimportant. It's very important. And being able to have that self-awareness and then talk about it is, is gravely important. But just talking about it or just understanding your drama is not necessarily going to just get rid of it, Right. Um, because as we've talked about in this book already, it drastically changes the way that your body functions, the way that your brain functions. So just chatting about it is not going to reverse that. So then he talks about the limitations of language. Um, he says on page 246, quote, talking about painful events doesn't necessarily establish community. Quite the contrary. Families and organizations may reject members who air the dirty laundry, Friends and family can lose patience with people who get stuck in their grief or hurt. This is one reason why trauma victims often withdraw and why their stories become rote narratives edited into a form least likely to provoke rejection. End quote. Um, And then he also talks about um, the fact that a lot of times you don't have words for trauma. Um, As in like, there's literally not words to describe it. It's really hard to put together a, um, not even necessarily a narrative, but even just explaining the emotions that you feel. Um, I think part of that is we as humans, especially in um, the U.S. and in the educational system of the U.S., um, are not taught about like emotional vocabulary. And so I think that a lot of times there's not that self-awareness and that body awareness and people will just get stuck and don't know how to explain what they're feeling um, because we were never taught to. Um, and then he talks about the danger of silence and I want to kind of put a disclaimer before I speak about this. Um, I am going to quote him. (laughs) I'm going to cough. I'm so sorry. I, I, it's going to be annoying. I'll try really hard not to, but I'm, I'm so sick. Um, I'm also, I don't have COVID. So, um, I am sick from, uh, (laughs) the COVID booster please go get it. If you can, it's much better than COVID, but be prepared. It knocked me out like a freight truck. Um, but yeah, so he talks about silence and I just want to kind of clarify, this isn't something that he said, but it's just something that I'd like to add. Um, yes, silence can be harmful when it comes to your own healing. However, If you are not ready to talk about your story, that is okay. That doesn't make you inferior. That's not shameful. Um, I think that the way that he words it could invoke shame in some people. And so I wanted to clarify that, that if you are not able to speak about your trauma right now, you can't find the words or you are not even just emotionally ready to share that with anybody, that is okay it is totally okay. I do think it's beneficial to share at some point in time, but healing can be a very slow process. And so go at your own pace. Healing is not linear. Do what works for you while also being aware of the end goal. Um, and with all of that being said, he says on page 234, um, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. 235. As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. Hiding your core feelings takes an enormous amount of energy. It saps your motivation to pursue worthwhile goals and it leaves you feeling bored and shut down. Meanwhile, stress hormones keep flooding your body, leading to headaches, muscle aches, problems with your bowels or sexual functions, and irrational behaviors that may embarrass you and hurt the people around you. Only after you identify the source of these responses can you start using your feelings as signals Of problems that require your urgent attention, end quote. And that's on page 235. And then on page 234, he says, Feeling listened to and understood changes our physiology. Being able to articulate a complex feeling and having our feelings recognized lights up our limbic brain and creates an aha moment, end quote. That's on page 234. Um, I found that interesting because if you grew up in religion, They're very in Christianity, like modern Christianity is very into speaking things into existence and like, you know, like the devil loves silence. And although I think that that's very skewed and I don't, I'm not, I don't subscribe to religion anymore. That's one thing that I've taken from religion is I have noticed that when I speak things that I feel shameful about out into the open to someone who is safe, it does really lose its power over me. not to say that speaking about it can't also trigger you or make you feel increasingly traumatized. It definitely depends on the situation, so that's why I want to like give the disclaimer. Um, but yeah, and then he also doesn't really mention this, but be careful who you sh- who you share your story with. Um, your story is valuable, and it is often very vulnerable. And so be cautious about who you let into that and who you give that honor of listening to you. Um because not everybody deserves it and not everyone will give you the response that is healthy for you. Some people will react with shame. Um I've made the mistake of telling someone my story, multiple people my story who either pressured me to report or um shamed me when I didn't want to. Um or I someone even went as far as telling me that I didn't deserve to call myself a survivor. Um so be cautious with that because if if you share it with someone who doesn't deserve it and who maybe isn't going to give a response that is healthy, it can really do some serious damage and it can kind of push you back into that cave of shame when you are met with additional shame or additional like criticism when you're finally brave enough to share what you would like to share. Um that it can really suck when someone like responds to that with shame. Um, but yeah. So then he talks about less successful treatments and the, the treatments that he has found more successful. It does not mean that either of these treatments are the end all be all for everyone, or that the ones that are less successful should never be used. This is based on his studies, which I will I will direct you back to the book for that because I'm not going to read all the studies that would take hours, but he does have some serious scientific evidence behind why he believes these things. So in the less successful treatments, he actually starts off by criticizing CBT, which I found so interesting because I've had so many therapists be like, CBT, 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 it's the only way to heal trauma. And um, he says on page 223. In contrast to its effectiveness for irrational fear such as spiders, CBT has not done so well for traumatized individuals, particularly those with histories of childhood abuse. Only about one in three participants with PTSD who finish research studies show some improvement. Those who complete CBD treatment usually have fewer PTSD symptoms, but they rarely recover completely. Most continue to have substantial problems with their health, work, or mental well-being end quote and that's on page two twenty three um, and then he says again. Let's see. Um, I think there was another. Oh no, I think that was it. Um I just found that very interesting. Uh I have been I've seriously been directed to CBT by like everyone. Um so that's interesting. Um if your therapist is directing you towards it, that's is not if it's working for you, like that's not for me. I'm not trying to shit on that. Um if you feel it's not working for you. Like perhaps this is why. (laughs) Um, So maybe, I don't know, maybe talk to your therapist about that. Um, But yeah, he has a whole little chunk on it and he actually talks about it through part five. So once again, if you get the book, um, he talks about it on page 222 to 224. Um, And then he talks about desensitization, which we talked about a little bit, but essentially there has been a lot of criticism about the idea that desensitizing people to trauma helps them heal um, because you're not actually healing the the bodily trauma. You're not releasing the tension in the body. You're not helping rewire the brain pathways. You're not helping make new like neural connections. You're essentially just shutting the system down and telling the system to just like, you know, separate yourself from the emotion which this is not to say that can be beneficial at times like the more that I have told my story the less I feel that it triggers me and I will slowly kind of do like exposure therapy with certain triggers that I feel are lower on like my trigger ladder I have triggers that are very high on that ladder that I feel my whole body shuts down when those triggers are enacted. Those are normally songs for me. Um, but I have smaller triggers that are involved with specifically my assaults. And um, those triggers, I've been able to kind of slowly expose myself and like desensitize myself to the intensity of that emotion. And it, it has been, it's been helpful. But as somebody who came from a place of serious dissociation, where my emotions were entirely turned off for like 18 years. Trying to then turn my emotions off further is like 100% not the answer for me. And what Vander Kolk talks about is that that's, it's really not the answer for a lot of traumatized people because a lot of traumatized people don't feel. So he says on page 224, but as the neuroscientist J- Jean Desity, whoops, I don't know if that's right, at the University of Chicago has shown desensitization to our own or other people's pain tends to lead to an overall blunting of emotional sensitivity End quote. So as he described for a lot of traumatizing people, um, like learning to feel can be really scary. Um, and it doesn't seem super productive to just teach people to essentially shut out those feelings. So he criticized the desensitization desensitization quite a bit. And then he talks about drugs, Um, He has had some hot takes about drugs, um, which I have loved so far. I talked about them, I believe, in the last part. Um, But on page 226, he says, However, drugs cannot cure trauma. They can only dampen the expressions of a disturbed physiology, and they do not teach the lasting lessons of self-regulation. They can help to control feelings and behavior, But always at a price, because they work by blocking the chemical systems that regulate engagement, motivation, pain, and pleasure. Some of my colleagues remain optimistic. I keep attending meetings where serious scientists discuss their quest for the elusive magic bullet that will miraculously reset the fear circuits of the brain, as if traumatic stress only involved one simple brain circuit. I also regularly prescribe medications. End quote. That's on page two twenty-six. So he talked about it earlier in the book, but it's not that medication isn't helpful. And obviously this doesn't apply to all situations, but medication isn't actually fixing anything. All that it's doing is essentially bringing you down to a level at which you can handle the emotions because it's blunting a lot of your emotions or it's like putting a blanket over them. So it's not actually healing anything or fixing anything. It's just kind of shutting something down. Um, That doesn't necessarily apply to like actual mental, like, like, um, Mental disorders in which it is brain chemistry or like you are not, you don't have enough of a certain chemical and you need, you know, intervention there. Um, But with trauma, medication can help manage things. Like if you're on like anxiety medication or um, for me, I take as needed anxiety meds. And he actually mentions the specific thing that he does, like the way that he um, prescribes benzos he talks about the fact that he does not prescribe benzos to people because they weaken inhibition and like they're very addictive, but that he will prescribe them as needed instead of like a daily basis thing. Um, And then he gave a very, very, very good little chunk of advice that I am a hundred percent going to take. And on page 227, he says "Um, I sometimes give my patients low doses of, benzodiazepines to use as needed but not enough to take on a daily basis they have to choose when to use up their precious supply and i asked them to keep a diary of what was going on when they decided to take the pill that gives us a chance to discuss the specific incidents that triggered them end quote so basically benzos can be really addictive so most psychiatrists nowadays either refuse to prescribe them at all or they will prescribe very small amounts to be used over time so for me, I get a quantity of like 30 pills and I literally like it lasts me for like six to nine months. Um, and benzos, by the way, are like Xanax, Valium, like that kind of stuff. Um, lorazepam, I think, is also a benzo. Um, so <coughs> sorry, the cough just comes. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, so that... it. It's all about balance and balance can be hard. <laughs> I am not someone who does well with balance, but I, I mentioned it, I think in the last episode, um, I had a therapist once that told me that medication should never be more than 50, 50, 50% medication, 50% coping therapy, treatment, etc. Um, Like I said, in the last episode, that doesn't necessarily apply to all cases. There are some cases in which medication is absolutely necessary. And it needs to go past that 50% to keep you alive. I get that. I think this is more of a generalized idea. Um, But yeah, so it's not that he's shitting on drugs. It's just that he doesn't believe that drugs should be like the number one solution. He also does talk about like LSD um, and the thought of using like um, psychedelic substances. And he, he basically just is skeptical, but says that he hopes that there's a way that it you know maybe there's more research but also mentions that like because there's a lot of risks and um just kind of there's a lot of problems with psychedelic substances in the past so he's he said you know he hopes that it doesn't blow up <laughs> like in a bad way um but yeah i mean like i think that it can be really tempting to to use substances that just essentially, like, take away the emotional pain or just kind of put a blanket over it because a lot of times your emotional pain when you're healing from trauma can be so much to bear. But I would definitely warn people about being on drugs in which you feel like you can't feel because I've had that. And that's, like, that's why I don't take daily medication because I hate the way that it makes me feel. Like, I feel like I cannot feel fully and I don't like that. And I don't like the kind of lack of engagement with my body and my brain that that provides. Um, And that is not, that is not me saying that I'm anti-drug that is just my personal experience with drugs. I also had a very traumatic experience with antidepressants. So um, I have like trauma associated with drugs in which I had like a crazy reaction to a drug and then had to go cold Turkey withdrawal and had like the withdrawal symptoms of like a full ass drug addict So I probably have a little bit of a unique experience, but yeah, that's kind of my take on it. And then he talks about more successful treatments. So first he starts off with breathing, which is probably the take, like the treatment that every therapist, trauma therapist starts off with. Um, Breathing is literally like the lifeline of trauma therapy, in my opinion, It was the first thing I learned in my sexual assault support group, which was the first type of therapy I received that made any impact on my healing journey. Um, I used to feel, I still feel when I'm anxious, like I have a cap on my lungs and like I can only breathe to a certain amount of my lung capacity. And then I hit like a board and I can't keep breathing. And I had zero idea that that was a result of anxiety and learning how to breathe gave me like the first relief I had felt with that anxiety symptom ever. I think that breathing is literally, it is the most accessible treatment. It is the most cost, like, you know, available because it's just breathing. Whereas a lot of these, as we go through these, I organize them in basically order of what I think is most accessible, most affordable, um, most available, And then kind of as we will talk about more, as we go up that ladder, they get kind of less accessible, more expensive, you know, et cetera. So we're going to start with the ones that are just kind of more accessible across the board. And I think breathing is like the best one on that list. Um, I also think that once you learn how to breathe and take advantage of your breath, I think that it can also just start a relationship with your body, um, which I think is so wildly beneficial. Um, my therapist always encourages that you take a deep breath in and you hold it. And then you take a deep breath out because if you're just taking deep breaths in, deep breaths out, you can still be hyperventilating. So if you take a deep breath in, hold it and then take a deep breath out, it basically like interrupts that intensity, like the up, down, up, down, up, down. If you're like having a panic attack. Um, but on page 209, Vander Kolk says, learning how to breathe calmly and remaining in a state of relative physical relaxation, even while accessing painful and horrifying memories, is an essential tool for recovery. When you deliberately take a few slow, deep breaths, you will notice the effects of the parasymp- parasympathetic break on your arousal. The more you stay focused on your breathing, the more you will benefit, particularly if you pay attention until the very end of the out breath and then wait a moment before you inhale again. As you continue to breathe and notice the air moving in and out of your lungs, you may think about the role that oxygen plays in nourishing your body and bathing your tissues with the energy you need to feel alive and engaged, which I love. Um, but yeah, so breathing, that's like the first successful treatment to trauma. Sounds so silly. Sounds so minimal. It's not, it's, it's very vital. And then he starts talking about mindfulness. So, um, on page 210, he says, Let's see. He says, um, at the core of recovery is self-awareness. The most important phrases in trauma therapy are notice that and what happens next. Traumatized people live with seemingly unbearable sensations. They feel heartbroken and suffer from intolerable sensations in the pit of their stomach or the tightness in their chest. Yet avoiding feeling these sensations in our bodies increases our vulnerability to being overwhelmed by them. And then he later says on page 210, Mindfulness puts us in touch with the trans- transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. When we pay focused attention to our bodily sensations, we can recognize the ebb and flow of our emotions and with that increase our control over them. End quote. I think essentially with mindfulness, with uh, like self awareness, um, and he, we're going to go into some like body awareness a little bit later. Um, it it's very intense um, to realize your feelings, especially when you've shut them down for a long time. Um, but it's so beneficial because it, it starts you start to learn your body. And if you've never intentionally learned your body and understood what physical reactions mean what, you might ha- be having physical reactions and have no idea how that's connecting to your feelings. And with mindfulness, if you're able to... Um, connect with your body, try to connect with your emotions of the way he describes it too is like not necessarily saying, Oh, I feel this, but saying like when I feel anxious, I feel XYZ, whether that's like tightness in my chest, a knot in my stomach, my shoulders tense up. And then you focus on that and try to like take a deep breath or do a calming exercise and see if that physical sensation releases the tension. Um, and then another kind of part of mindfulness is like emotional regulation and self-awareness of being able to understand to an extent what, how to control emotions. Um, and so what he says on, let's see, 209, he says, um, since emotional regulation is the critical issue in managing the effects of trauma and neglect, it would make an enormous difference if teachers, army sergeants, foster parents, and mental health professionals were thoroughly schooled in emotional regulation techniques. Right now, this is still mainly the domain of preschool and kindergarten teachers who deal with immature brains and impulsive behavior on a daily basis and who are often very adept at managing them. End quote. Um, funny enough, a lot of emotional regulation skills um, sound very juvenile because We all should have been taught them (laughs) at a young age and we weren't. Um, But even like being able to recognize when you start to get out of control and when your emotions start to get away from you and being able to, you know, say, okay, I'm feeling like I'm out of control. I feel like my emotions are getting to be too much. I need to take a step away and you can take a step away and you can work on some calming techniques just even having that awareness and being able to intervene is so beneficial. And it took me a very long time. I didn't realize I lacked emotional regulation until I was educated on what it meant. I just thought I was bad and like, didn't have self-control because I grew up in a religious environment where the fruits of the spirit were preached at me. And anytime I had an emotional outburst, it was always reiterated to like call on God for holy or for um self-control. And I, 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 it hurt my brain because I didn't know what that meant. It did not make sense to me. And it was because I I was basically being asked to do something that I had not been taught how to do and I had no tools. And once I was able to be given tools to put in my little emotional regulation toolbox, it, I was like, okay, I kind of get it now, um, which that came from therapy and from support groups. Um, a really good... First step for this, too, that's quite accessible. As there are a lot of free therapy worksheets, I have a link on my link tree in my Instagram that is a very massive document with a lot of it's basically like a mental health master document with a lot of like free resources for therapy worksheets, calming techniques, coping mechanisms. Um, and then another good one is children's books. Like, if you look up children's books on breathing on how to stay calm, you would be amazed how much they can teach you because it really does go back to like the basics of it. Um, And you might feel kind of silly, but there are like mindfulness books for children where they teach you how to breathe. And it's like, if you've never been taught that, it's a really accessible way to learn how to at least start the journey of like emotional regulation and mindfulness and body awareness. Um, And then another... Uh, treatment that he feels is successful is writing to yourself. Um, He says on page 240, when you write to yourself, you don't have to worry about other people's judgment. You just listen to your own thoughts and let let the flow take over. Later, when you reread what you wrote, you often discover surprising truths. That's on page 240. Um, He talks about free writing. So basically just writing the first thing that comes to your mind without judgment of what those things might be. That was one of the first things that I did in my support group was our therapist gave us just like paper and was like, okay, write whatever comes to your mind. Um, I was just looking over, I have a binder of all of my therapy worksheets for my support group. And I was just looking over it literally yesterday and like had so much grief for like the little girl that was trying to process so many emotions because it was really interesting to see what I wrote because I wrote so many things where I blamed myself for things and I took so much responsibility of like me not being smart enough or not being controlled enough or not knowing better. And that like resulted in like me getting hurt. Um, but yeah, I think that writing can be a beautiful tool. Poetry for me has done some serious healing. um, writing the blog has done some serious healing for me. I I'm someone that processes through writing and through talking so I can write something and have no idea that I even was aware of that until I reread it. And then I'm like, Oh, (laughs) apparently that is how I feel. Um, so yeah, writing can be very beneficial. Um, he then goes into yoga, which he is a big fan of yoga. He really talks up yoga the entire, uh, Part of this book. Um, so on page 272, which let me flip there real quick, uh, he says All yoga programs consist of a combination of breath practices, stretches or postures, and meditation. Different schools of yoga emphasize variations in intensity and focus within these core components. For example, variations. In the speed and depth of breathing and use of the mouth, nostrils, and throat all produce different results. And some techniques have powerful effects on energy. In our classes, we keep the approach simple. Many of our patients are barely aware of their breath. So learning to focus on the in and out breath to notice whether the breath was fast or slow and to count the breaths in some poses can be significant, can be a significant accomplishment. Um, Yoga has been helpful to me. Um. Because of the cost of going to a yoga gym, I, like, didn't keep up on it as much as I would like to. Um, I think the thing that is more accessible is if you look up, like, trauma-informed yoga on YouTube, that might be more accessible and also just might feel a little more safe. The thing that I found really hard with yoga is, especially in the, like, in Seattle, yoga can be it can be a very intimidating environment when you show up and people are better than you at yoga or just seem really cool. Or even like with my personal body insecurity, seeing a lot of very thin and fit people who are just like, like ripped makes me instantly insecure. Um, And so I've found that like finding a few select yoga videos on YouTube where I can shut the blinds, you know, light a candle Play calming music in the background, have like a space where I can meditate after in my own home can be very comforting and can feel a lot safer. Um, Yoga can also bring up some unwanted feelings um, and sensations in your body, especially if you have a lot of trauma trapped in your body. Um, And he talks about that, about like a pose where you lie on your back and basically your pelvis is open um, and your legs are spread apart. And for sexual assault survivors, that can feel like a very intimidating, um, position. And so sometimes it can feel safer to be in your house where if it does trigger you in some way, you can go lay down for a little bit or call a friend and not feel the pressure of like being in a social environment. Um, I do have some yoga resources on my, um, mental health master document that's on my Instagram. So if you're looking for that, That's a good place to start. There are also a lot of creators that have um, yoga platforms, whether that's like POC yoga or trans yoga or queer yoga or um, body inclusive yoga or whatever. There's a lot of different creators on Instagram that have different yoga platforms in which there are like online classes. Um, And I think the cost is usually a little bit lower with that as well. Um, And then he talks about um, body awareness. So he says on page 275, in yoga, you focus your attention on your breathing and on your sensations moment to moment. You begin to notice the connection between your emotions and your body, perhaps how anxiety about doing a pose actually throws you off balance. You begin to experiment with changing the way you will feel or the way you feel while taking a deep breath, relieve that tension in your shoulder while focusing on your exhalations, produce a sense of calm. Simply noticing what you feel fosters emotional regulation and it helps you to tr- stop trying to ignore what's going on inside you. As I often tell my students, the two most important phrases in therapy, as in yoga, are notice that and what happens next. Once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than with fear, everything shifts. Body awareness also changes your sense of time. Trauma makes you feel as if you are stuck forever in a helpless state of horror. In yoga, you realize that your sensations rise to a peak and then fall. For example, if an instructor invites you to enter a particularly challenging position, you may at first feel a sense of defeat or resistance, anticipating that you won't be able to tolerate the feelings brought up by this particular position. A good yoga teacher will encourage you to just notice any tension while timing what you feel with the flow of your breath. We'll be holding this position for 10 breaths. This helps you anticipate the end of discomfort and strength and strengthens your capacity to deal with physical and emotional distress, awareness that All experience is transitory changes your perspective on yourself, end quote. That's page 275 to 276. Um, I really liked that. I have had yoga teachers who've done that, who have said, like, if you're feeling tension, if you're feeling discomfort, like, notice it. You can let it pass. Like, we're only going to be here for two more breaths. If you fall out, that's okay. Like, recenter yourself. See if you can find it again. And, like, just giving yourself grace. I think anything that's even slightly athletic, that there's a task at hand. A lot of times people can be very hard on themselves, um, me included. So I think it can be helpful to just, like, have grace. And it really does connect you with your body. Um, like I said, be careful of, like, what communities you get involved in. Because I think some communities can be, like, hella elitist. And it's not super fun to get involved in that. Um, he also talks briefly about um, self-defense and learning how to defend yourself. Um, I'm going to approach this topic with some serious, um, delicacy, because I think that there are narratives that can spin out of it, which I know are not what he meant, but like the idea that if you would have been trained in self-defense, you wouldn't have been assaulted. I have been told that before, and it is a gut punch. I think that the way he's describing it is more so that sometimes when you are given tools, it just provides you with an extra sense of safety. Um, because you feel like you're more prepared. You feel like you're more um, apt to be able to defend yourself if needed, especially after you've been violated. Um, He also talks about touch and movement therapy. So like massage therapy, body work. Um, Massage therapy was really beneficial for me. I, I didn't go with the intention of helping with my mental health. I actually went for physical health. I have a terrible back and my hips are fucked up. Um, Which honestly, my hips are probably fucked up from trauma because I have nothing that has been—I don't have an injury that's related to my hips. It's probably more that I'm carrying trauma in my hips. But um, I just basically like had was able to build a relationship with my massage therapist, and even just having someone touch like my back and like my lower back and areas that for me are like sensitive and make me feel like I want to protect myself. Having a woman who was a safe place where we would talk about things all the time. She knew about my trauma. She knew about my triggers. We openly would talk about things. She made it so clear that if I ever felt uncomfortable, I could let her know and we could take some deep breaths. We could stop. She told me about things in her life. Like we had a very close friendship and it created a a very safe space where it really helped me get more comfortable with my body because for a while, anyone touching any part of my body felt like I was like crawling back into my skin Um, with that, be careful. Um, there are some things within massage therapy that, um, people will take advantage of people. So I would always suggest if you're a woman going with a woman, um, and then I would always suggest really looking into reviews, looking into that specific therapist's reviews and making sure that the person that you are seeing is, um, safe. I would also really suggest going against, um, like not going to large chain massage therapy places, um, or even just chain massage places. Um, like I'm not going to name any cause I don't want to get sued. But if you think of like the big ones that come to mind, when you think of like a massage place that has like chain, uh, like chains locations, that's probably who I'm referring to. There have been some serious lawsuits against them. So I would really suggest against going to a chain location and instead maybe seeking out a licensed massage therapist. Cause those are two different licenses. Um, I learned all of this from my massage therapist who was very protective of me and did not want me to get roped up with the wrong crowd in the massage therapy world. Um, and then he talks about body work, which is similar. Um, he says, on page 218 what does body work do for people Leisha's reply who is a body work therapist just like you can thirst for water you can thirst for touch it is a comfort to be met confidently deeply firmly gently responsively. mindful touch and movement grounds people and allows them to discover tensions that they may have held on for so long that they are no longer even aware of them when you are touched you wake up to that part of your body that's being touched the body is physically restricted when emotions are bound up inside People's shoulders tighten, their facial mus- muscles tense. They spend enormous energy on holding back their tears or any sound or movement that might betray their inner state. When the physical tension is released, that feeling can be released. Movement helps breathing to become deeper as the tensions are released. Expressive sounds can be discharged. The body becomes freer. Breathing freer, being in flow. Touch makes it possible to live in a body that can move in response to being moved. End quote. That's on page 218 to 219. Um, so yeah that can be very beneficial. Once again, can be a little lower on the cost spectrum. Um, and then he also talks about theater and music, which I was so surprised that this even came up. Music has been huge for me. Finding people that can say things that I don't feel like I can say, or finding music that evokes joy in me when I'm feeling very depressed. Um, I actually, one of my number one cope mechanisms is if I'm feeling suicidal or largely depressed. I have a like playlists that are specifically happy songs that evoke joy in me and I get myself up and I force myself to dance and it can be very spastic and awkward and weird and just kind of shaking out sensations in my body, but it has single-handedly stopped, um, like me from harming myself. Um, and it's been like one of the most successful coping mechanisms that I've been able to utilize, so on page 335, um, he talks about just, like, collective movement. He says, collective movement and music create a larger context for our lives and meaning beyond our individual fate. Religious rituals universally involve rhythmic movements from davening at the – davening? Question mark? I don't know if that's how you say it. At the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to the sung liturgy and gestures of the Catholic Mass to moving meditation in Buddhist ceremonies and the rhythmic prayer rituals performed five times a day by devout Muslims. Music was a backbone of the civil rights movement in the United States. Anyone alive at that time will not forget the lines of marchers, armed links singing, we shall overcome as they walk steadily towards the police who are masked to stop them. Music binds together people who might individually be terrified, but who collectively become powerful advocates for themselves and others. Um, and quote that's on page three thirty-five. So I think there's a, there's a dual benefit, um, moving together, singing together, chanting together, Uh, acting in rhythm together can feel like a collective and then you can also feel like a collective when you hear someone write a song that is writing the words that you feel like i said there can be limitations to language as he described earlier where you might not be able to express how you feel and with music sometimes someone else can express that for you and that can be a very beautiful thing um he also talks about theater um and says that on page 327, traumatized people are terrified to feel deeply. They are afraid to experience their emotions because emotions lead to a loss of control. In contrast, theater is about embodying emotions, giving voices to them, becoming rhythmically engaged, talking on and embodying different roles. End quote. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into that um, because I think that that quote pretty much sums it up. I would recommend if you're interested in learning more about that. He has a whole chapter on theater that is super interesting. Um, and he talked about multiple different like trauma therapy programs through theater. And then the eighth method, um, therapy. So therapy, I mean, kind of an obvious treatment method. Um, but for one, you want to find a therapist that makes you feel safe and able to open up. Um, I think I've talked about this before. I know I've talked about it on the podcast at the very least, um, therapists are not you're not always going to have an immediate connection with therapist or it might not always be a good fit so make sure that when you are working to find a therapist you are working to also kind of interview them and make sure that your values line up that your morals line up that um they are an accepting affirming person of the lifestyle that you live um because it can be super detrimental to end up going to a therapist who kind of reiterates the shame or trauma that you felt that say, makes you need to go to therapy. Um, as for th- finding a therapist, um, there are therapists who obviously accept insurance, which if you don't have insurance, there are also therapists who do sliding scale based on income. Um, I found the best resource to find a therapist is PsychologyToday.com. You can look up your therapist Um, and filter it by their specialty and like what you're seeking out for treatment, whether that's anxiety, depression, ADHD, trauma, et cetera. Um, and then you can also filter through insurance, um, and it helps find people in your area. Um, I would highly, um, I think I've, I think I've actually promoted BetterHelp in like online therapy platforms in the past before I knew more about them. So I'm going to correct that. Um, there has been some serious shit about BetterHelp coming out. Um, I'm not going to get into it because I, uh, once again, don't want to get sued, but I would really suggest looking into that. Um, I have heard that uh, therapists are not paid super well, and there are also a lot of therapists who don't really seem to be trained well enough. Um, so be careful about that. Um, I have had therapists that make me feel very unsafe and judged. So, and it's kind of traumatizing, to be honest. Um, I've had therapists that I was with for like a year that, like, was you know, just didn't affirm me and made me feel ashamed when I would tell her about certain things. And, um, I was like too anxious to like basically break up with her. (laughs) And once I did and found the therapist that I'm with now, it was like such a, I'm so, so much better. Um, I've also literally walked out of a therapist's office. I've gone in for an intake appointment and had my therapist, uh, not want to talk to me at all until she, we figured out billing And then ended up yelling at the billing consultant on the phone for my insurance. And I straight up took the phone out of her hand and like said to the billing uh, person, I'm so sorry. Uh, We don't actually need your help anymore, but thank you. And the lady was like, wait, 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 the therapist. And I was like, yeah, we don't need her help anymore because you are not going to be my therapist. This is not a good fit. I hope you have a good day. And I'm so glad I did that because if she had ended up being my therapist, it would have been an absolute train wreck. Um. So he says, he mentions a little bit about, I believe, the safety aspect with therapists Um, on page 214. So he says, um, while it's inappropriate and unethical for therapists to tell you the details of their personal struggles, it is perfectly reasonable to ask what particular forms of therapy they have been trained in, where they learned their skills, and whether they've personally benefited from the therapy they propose for you. There is no one treatment of choice for trauma and any therapist who believes that his or her particular method is the only answer to your problem is suspect of being an ideologue. I don't think I said that word right, rather than somebody who is interested in making sure you get well. And then he further says, um, feeling safe is a necessary condition for you to confront your fears and anxiety. Someone who is stern, judgmental, agitated, or harsh is likely to, are likely to leave you feeling scared, abandoned, and humiliated. And that won't help you resolve your traumatic stress. There may be times as old feelings from the past are stirred up when you become suspicious that the therapist resembles someone who once hurt or abused you. Hopefully, this is something you can work through together because in my experience, patients get better only if they develop deep, positive feelings for their therapists. Um, And then he later says, the critical question is this. This is all on page 214, by the way. The critical question is this. Do you feel that your therapist is curious to find out who you are and what you and not some generic PTSD patient need? Are you just a list of symptoms on some diagnostic questionnaire? Or does your therapist take the time to find out why you do what you do and think what you think? Therapy is a collaborative process, a mutual exploration of yourself. End quote. Um. I'm not going to elaborate on that. I think he says it perfectly. And then there's also alternative therapies. Animal therapy can maybe provide safety for spe- that speaking with someone like can't provide. Um, he says on page 215, some people don't remember anyone they felt safe with. For them, engaging with horses or dogs may be much safer than dealing with human beings, end quote. Obviously, um, a, a trained human being might help you later down the road, but maybe starting with an animal is the way that you would feel safest. Um, he then goes into EMDR, which your girl is in the middle of EMDR and it's a bitch um, in a good way. Like it's, it's helping, but like, oof. Um, so he talks about, he, he goes into a lot of the science behind EMDR. And then he goes into um, basically the th- three things that he feels like EM, EMDR does. So he says on page 230, or I'm sorry, 255, EMDR loosens up something in the mind slash brain that gives people rapid access to loosely associated memories and images from their past. This seems to help them put the traumatic experience into a larger context or perspective. People may be able to heal from trauma without talking about it. EMDR enables them to observe their experiences in a new way without verbal give and take from another person. EMDR can even help if the patient and therapist do not have a trusting relationship. This is particularly intriguing because trauma, understandably, rarely leaves people with an open, trusting heart. End quote. Um, For those of you who don't know what EMDR is, it's essentially a therapy um, in which there is some activation of both sides of your brain while you are um, recounting memories, essentially. So sometimes that can just be you going through your memories in your head. Sometimes you can narrate it out loud. Um, It kind of depends. But basically, like sometimes that can be someone putting a finger in front of your face and you looking at the finger going back and forth. Sometimes it can be um holding two different items that are buzzing um like rhythmically in each hand of activating each side of your brain um it kind of just depends and then he talks about like the science behind it and essentially that when your eyes move rapidly back and forth you're you're activating you know two sides of your brain um which that's it's it's eye movement desensitization something is what it stands for I should probably look that up. That might be good to know. Let's look it up. E-M-D-R. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I was very close. Um, So basically that moving back and forth um, is similar to what happens when you are in REM sleep. And there has been lots of studies on REM sleep and the fact that like being in REM sleep solidifies your memories it reshapes them. Um, dreams impact your memories. Like all these different things have a process in how, or um, a part in how your brain processes memories. And so basically the science behind it is kind of the idea that like you might be able to access something similar to REM sleep by having this kind of rapid eye movement back and forth um, or rapid movement between like activating two sides of your brain, whether that's like between your hands or whatever. Um, but yeah, so he gets into that. That's on page 262, by the way, if you'd like to actually read about it. Cause I gave a very um, brief, you know, description. And then my therapist also um, describes it as try to view it. Like you're viewing yourself in a movie. It can be really overwhelming if you feel like you're in your trauma again. So for me personally, it helped to like, recount my memory as a movie of me watching myself in the movie compared to me actively living it. So that's just a little, a little tip. Uh, he then goes into IFS in chapter 17. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to get super into this or the, the next two therapies because I, I don't entirely understand what they are. Um, very confusing. Um, essentially what I understood of IFS is it, it is acknowledging the different parts of your internal family. Um, and basically like your internal family is facets of yourself that have different jobs. So there can be, um, a firefighter, which like does everything it can to put out emotional fires. It can be a manager, which like manages your emotions and helps protect. And then at the, center of that is your true self. Um, And he says on page 285 beneath the surface of the protective parts of trauma survivors, there exists an undamaged essence, a self that is confident, curious, and calm. A self that has been sheltered from destruction by the various protectors that have emerged in their efforts to ensure survival. Once those protectors trust, it is safe to separate the self will spontaneously emerge and the parts can be enlisted in the healing process. So the parts, he mentions quite a few parts, but the parts that I found were mentioned the most were the firefighters and the managers. Um, so on page 290, he says that firefighters will do anything to make emotional pain go away. Aside from sharing the task of keeping the exiles locked up, they are the opposite of managers. Managers are all about staying in control while firefighters will destroy the house in order to extinguish the fire, end quote. Um I know this sounds kind of confusing, but basically the way that the therapy works is um, your therapist asks you questions and like helps lead you through a process. And if you start to, if something pops up where you get defensive or you get, you feel an emotion, your therapist basically says like, what are you feeling? Like what, what just came up and then asks you to ask that part of yourself to step aside. Like, Basically, is it okay if that part steps aside and trusts you to be able to walk forward through this or whatever? And it basically is helping like, like little by little kind of break down those barriers of protection in order to get to your true self to help rebuild. Um, I feel like that's kind of a shitty way of explaining it because I, I think it's a very complicated process, but that is what I got out of it. So that's called IFS. Um, he then goes into psychomotor therapy. So on page three hundred two, and if you haven't noticed, we're getting we're getting higher up on the like it, these therapies are typically more expensive and less accessible. Um, so let's see psychomotor therapy. Um, so essentially, psychom- psychomotor therapy is um, from what I've understood is you, oh, this is hard to explain. Um, basically, like you're the protagonist of your story and you build up a structure. Um. Basically in the context of psychomotor therapy, it means that it's a kind of I think it's almost entirely a group therapy, or you would use physical objects if you're not in a group therapy setting. But basically, it's this method of therapy where you use like basically items or people to represent uh struct like your structure, your family structure, your uh Emotional structure, and it's like role playing essentially. And so, you the example that he gave was like someone is the protagonist, and they assign someone in their group to be their mom, and they talk about what their mom did to them. And then the therapist gives the person who was assigned the role of the mom kind of a little bit of a script as to what to say. It's not improv, it's like scripted by the therapist because they've been trained. And, um, that person then just reiterates that. And then, you know, maybe the dad comes in and then they're able to then create an ideal version. So they en- enlist someone else in the group to play the ideal version of their father or their mother or their boyfriend or whatever, where the ideal version can say, if I was your father, I would have loved you. I would have never hurt you. I would have never laid a hand on you. And it basically provides this like level of safety in which you can create kind of these new memories and like these new associations where there's a lot of closure that can come with that. Um, and it can be very healing for people. And then there's also kind of like you can engage the witness, which I think normally is the therapist, which is basically like a non judgmental observer. So, say that the protagonist, the person who's like receiving the therapy at the moment, it says, starts getting frustrated. Like the witness might say like I've I noticed that you're that you're feeling frustrated and just kind of notices and acknowledges um which I think kind of serves as an anchor. And so the way that he describes it on page 302 is the job of the director/therapist and the other group members is, is to provide protagonists with the support they need to delve in, into whatever they have been too afraid to explore on their own. The safety of the group allows you to notice things that you've hidden from yourself usually the things you are most ashamed of. When you no longer have to hide, the structure allows you to place the shame where it belongs, on the figures right in front of you who represent those who hurt you and made you feel helpless as a child. Feeling safe means feeling you can say things to your father or rather the placeholder who represents him that you wish you could have said as a five-year-old. You can tell the placeholder for your depressed and frightened mother how terrible you felt about not being able to take care of her. Um, End quote. So that's page 302. He talks about it more but that's kind of the gist of it. Um, And then lastly, there's neurofeedback. I looked at the definition of this because I was a little bit confused. Um, The definition is a form of biofeedback in which subjects respond to a display of their own brainwaves or other electrical activity of the nervous system. So on page 322, he says that neurofeedback changes, changes brain connectivity patterns the mind follows by creating new patterns of engagement. So, this therapy is quite literally changing your brain patterns. Um, and from what I understood, it's essentially you sitting with your therapist and you're looking at a screen in which you can see your own brain waves, and your therapist engages in specific exercises that kind of reroute your brain waves. Um, on page 324, he says once the brain has been trained to produce different patterns of electrical communication, no further treatment is necessary. In contrast to drugs, which do not change the fundamental brain activity and work only as long as the patient keeps taking them. And then he says again on page 327, neither drugs nor conventional therapy have been shown to activate the neuroplasticity necessary to bring those capacities back online after critical periods have passed. Um, That's on page 327. So I looked up, I did a little bit of research on my own. This is probably the most extensive therapy and it's also the most expensive. So the average uh, like length is about 30 sessions, and that's about $3,000 or more. So it's definitely not the most accessible type of therapy, but it seems to be like a pretty intense therapy where it seems to have a pretty long-lasting effect. Um, he also says on page 325, our patients find it very helpful to see the patterns of localized elect- electrical activity in their brains. We can show them the patterns that seem to be responsible for oh my God, to be responsible for their difficulty focusing or for their lack of emotional control. They can see why different brain areas need to be trained to generate different frequencies and communication patterns. These explanations help them shift from self-blaming attempts to control their behavior, to learning to process information differently. End quote. That's on page 325. So basically you're able to see the science of your own brain on a literal screen where you're seeing why your brain waves are acting the way they are and then how they are impacting you, which I'm sure is very affirming to just know you're not crazy and you're not just like a loser. Your brain is quite literally not functioning correctly, which we've talked a lot about in the last two episodes. Um, you know, just the importance of, of science basically. Um, so those are all of the treatments that he goes over. So I'll just reiterate them one more time. For less successful treatments, we have CBT, desensitization, drugs, specifically LSD, and then he talks about benzos as well. And then for more successful treatments, he talks about breathing, mindfulness, and within that, emotional regulation and self-awareness, writing to yourself, yoga, trained self-defense, touch-slash-movement therapy, which would be like massage therapy or body work, theater or music, normal therapy, EMDR. IFS, psychomotor therapy, and lastly is neurofeedback. Um, I know that's a lot of information. Uh, literally, if any of you want this outline, <laughs> I can send it to you if you actually want to like do more research on your own. And then I'm going to end with a few excerpts from his epilogue. They kind of have nothing to do with the treatment, but it's kind of just a closure on the book itself. And I think that it's pretty beneficial. So he starts on page 350. Uh, discussions of PTSD still tend to focus on recently returned soldiers, victims of terrorist bombings, or survivors of terrible accidents. But trauma remains a much larger public health issue, arguably the greatest threat to our national well being. Since 2001, far more Americans have died at the hands of their partners or other family members than in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. American women are twice as likely to suffer domestic violence than breast cancer. The American Academy of Pediatrics estimates that firearms kill twice as many children as cancer does. All around Boston, okay, sorry, all around Boston, I see signs advertising the Jimmy Fund, which fights children's cancer and for Marches to fund research on breast cancer and leukemia. But we seem far too embarrassed or discouraged to mount a massive effort to help children and adults learn to deal with their fear, rage, and collapse, the predictable consequences of having been traumatized. When I give presentations on trauma and trauma treatment, Participants sometimes ask me to leave out the politics and confine myself to talking about neuroscience and therapy. I wish I could separate trauma from politics, but as long as we continue to live in denial and treat only trauma while ignoring its origins, we are bound to fail. In today's world, your zip code, even more than your genetic code, determines whether you will lead a safe and healthy life. People's income, family structure, housing, employment, and educational opportunities affect not only their risk of developing traumatic stress, but also their access to effective help to address it. Poverty, unemployment, inferior schools, social isolation, widespread availability of guns, and substandard housing are all breeding grounds for trauma. Trauma breeds further trauma. Hurt people hurt other people. That's on page 350. And then he goes on to talk about society and children um, within trauma. On page 351, he says, people can learn to control and change their behavior, but only if they feel safe enough to experiment with new solutions. The body keeps the score. If trauma is encoded in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations, then our first priority is to help people move out of the fight-or-flight states, reorganize their perceptions of danger, and manage relationships. Where traumatized children are concerned, the last things we should be cutting from school schedules are the activities that can do precisely that. Chorus, physical education, recess, and anything else that involves movement, play, and other forms of joyful engagement. As we've seen, my own profession often compounds rather than alleviates the problem. Many psychiatrists today work in assembly line offices where they see patients they hardly know for 15 minutes and then dole out pills to relieve pain, anxiety, or depression. Their message seems to be, leave it to us to fix you, just be compliant and take these drugs and come back in three months. Be sure not to use alcohol or illegal drugs to relieve your problems. Such shortcuts in treatment make it impossible to develop self-care and self-leadership. One tragic example of this orientation is the rampant prescription of painkillers, which now kill more people in the each year in the United States than guns or car accidents. Our increasing use of drugs to treat these conditions doesn't address the real issues. Why are these patients trying to cope? Or what are these patients trying to cope with? What are their internal or external resources? How do they calm themselves down? Do they have a caring relationship with their bodies? And what do they do to cultivate a physical sense of power, vitality, and relaxation? Do they have dynamic interactions with other people? Who really knows them, loves them, and cares about them? End quote that's on page 351 to 352. Um, and then there is a chunk about, um, trauma and teaching, uh, which if you're interested in that, I would really highly recommend reading it. It's page 343, to 356. Um, but lastly, I will end on this on three page 358. He says, Trauma constantly confronts us with our fragility and with man's inhumanity to man, but also with our extraordinary resilience. I have been able to do this work for so long because it drew me to explore our sources of joy, creativity, meaning, and connection, all the things that make life worth living. I can't begin to imagine how I would have coped with what many of my patients have endured, and I see their symptoms as a part of their strength, the ways they learn to survive. And despite all their suffering, many have gone on to become loving partners, parents, exemplary teachers, nurses, science, and artists. End quote. That's on page 358. Um, I can't say enough good things about this book. I think it taught me so much. I hope you feel like it taught you something too. Please reach out to me if you would like any clarification, if you can't afford the book and you'd like me to send you photos of certain pages. Um, there is a lot of resources online as well. um, I think this is a very beneficial resource and I think if you have the capacity to read it and you feel like you're in a state where you can it that's not going to trigger you it it's very very helpful and it's dense as shit so like take your time but if if there's one part that I would suggest that you read it would be part 5 of going through the treatments um but yeah thanks for listening thanks for kind of diving into this interesting little I've never done a series on the podcast before this is a first time thing for me, which who knows if I find more books that I enjoy relating to mental health or trauma, I have quite a few books on my shelf that I'm planning on reading in the next year that very well might kind of make it into the podcast in some way or another. But let me know if you enjoyed this format. I know that it was a little clunky just because there's so much information. And I also have had to talk so much faster than I would like to. But... um yeah, I mean I'd love to hear your feedback on this type of a format and if you feel like it was beneficial or not. But until then, I hope you find other episodes of the podcast helpful. And as for this episode, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please write us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Blog and visit us online at seraphinablog.com. And like I mentioned earlier, You can go on my Instagram and look up the master document for mental health resources as well. There's a lot of resources related to what I just spoke about in this episode. Um, But as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. And if you're a little bit overwhelmed because of all the information and all the trauma, you can do it later. (laughs) See you next week.